Right about at this point in time, the MCU was doing very well. This is also when the finalization of things being shifted over to Disney was going through. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, this is the first film of the MCU to be done completely under Disney. I could be wrong about that. <clears throat> and this film, well, this is an interesting film. This is definitely a Star Wars effect, although I still need to rename that at some point. In other words, a film that by all accounts should not have succeeded, but basically got really, really lucky and turned into a smash hit. Its plot isn't that excessive. It's not a super amazing plot. I mean, a bunch of misfits end up thrown together and then turn into fast friends by the end. We've seen that story before. And it was being released in August, which at this point in history, which, I mean, this is only a few years ago at this point, was considered the dump month when it comes to films. Like, that's when you put films that you don't expect to sell well. And it also happened to be about the Guardians of the Galaxy, which the general reaction amongst comic viewers was either, who? Or, why would you make a movie about them? Or, if you want to get really nitty-gritty, which? So, <laughs> we have a situation where everything was going against this film. I mean, there's no way this is going to succeed, right? And yet, it was being done deliberately, and I don't know who decided this, but somewhere, someone uh, up at Marvel decided, let's see if we can make something successful of one of our least known properties. Now, I've kind of mentioned this before when it came to uh, Captain America 2, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to bring this up in the Ultron video, which actually goes before this one. Don't, don't ask. But the point is, given the whole X-Men mutants thing that was going on at this point in time, I have a feeling that this was an attempt on their behalf to basically try to open up things that weren't directly connected to mutants or the X-Men, while still opening up things that would be tangentially connected to the mutants and the X-Men. In fact, one of the things that's been said specifically about this film is they wanted to bring cosmic Marvel into the MCU. And here we are. <laughs> they also really wanted to try and... Well, basically, ensure that even though this film surely wasn't going to sell well, they wanted to make sure that they at least recompensed their losses. This is one of the reasons why Winter Soldier came out the same year as this film, just a few months earlier. So they put this one in the dump slot, and they tossed it to this guy who, you know, they didn't really have a lot of faith in. They, the casting was interesting, because the casting is basically brilliant, if you think about it. Almost everyone who was cast as someone who had a lot of either enthusiasm or a specific slice of talent. I'm going to share something with you. I actually have a picture saved right here. Um... These are all of the people who auditioned and screen-tested for Peter Quill. Joel Edgerton, Eddie Redmayne, Jensen Ackles, Lee Pace, Wes Bentley, Jack Huston, Cam Gigantet, Sullivan Stapleton, Logan Marshall-Green, Garrett Hudlin, Chris Lowell, James Marsden, Jim Sturgis, Joseph Gordon-Lewitt, Aaron Paul, Michael Rosenbaum, Glenn Howerton, and John Krasinski. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, that's a huge number of lists, and, and depending on who you are as far as film and acting geekdom, you may be like, why do I care about these names? That's not the point. The point is that it was a huge list, and mostly smaller name stars at the time. You know, people who were not A-listers, for example. And that's kind of the thing. They brought in a bunch of actors who at the time were consistent, consistent of B-listers, with only really one significant exception. Now, that would be Vin Diesel, consequently. So they brought in a bunch of B-listed actors who were good. <laughs> I know that sounds like a strange thing, but as I've talked about before, Marvel uh, started to formulate a formula right about at this point in time, historically speaking, 
with regards to the MCU. And that formula was send out talent scouts to find people who aren't big names, who aren't going to charge a large amount of money, and who don't already have a huge amount of establishment, and give them a project and see what they do with it. Now, obviously, they don't they don't seek out small names. Well, sometimes they do, but still, for the most part, this is people who are actors and have a career behind them. But that's about it. Uh, Zoe Saldana is actually probably one of the better examples of this. She obviously was an actress and had been in several large pictures before, but never as an A-lister. Whereas at this point, she was basically being act asked to be the second main character. You know, little stuff like that. Dave Bautista, of course, Bautista, I hope I'm saying that right, because I actually have a lot of respect for the man, who was really, really enthused and excited about getting into this and specifically went out of his way to take acting classes and lessons and trying to shore up his abilities because he really cared about doing the best job he could because he was so excited about getting the project. Just stuff like that. But my favorite story about casting has to be Chris Pratt, the lead. See... <laughs> The thing is, most of the people I just mentioned are basically action stars, to some extent or another. And that's why they didn't really go. Because Peter Quill is not an action star. Oh, he has action sequences, but that's not his role. That's not his, his thing. He's not Batman. He's actually closer to Deadpool than anything else. At least as far as direct parallels. So, how do we, how do we cast this person? Chris Pratt really wanted this role. Apparently, Chris Pratt had also tried to get into G one of the previous G.I. Joe films and completely failed at that because he's not really an action star. That's the funny thing. You ever see how many action films Chris Pratt is in? Because that's not really what he's good at. I mean, yeah, sure, he can look the part, and sure, he can do his shtick, but he is good at the, the personality. I, I myself have said that Chris Pratt plays Chris Pratt in basically every film he's in, right? And so he just kind of portrays his own particular shtick in just about every presentation. Now, I'm not complaining about that. I actually enjoy him, and I enjoy most of the movies he's in. Most. Hell, I'm looking forward to seeing Lego Movie 2 at this point. But the point being, of all of these portrayals, he was the one who was able to portray someone who was more of a comedic lead rather than an action lead. Apparently, James Gunn didn't even want to see him. He was just like, no, no. And he had to be convinced, okay, fine, fine, I'll sit in on an audition of this Chris guy, whatever. And according to sources, within 30 seconds, he was like, sold! <laughs> because he fits the role. He really does. He, he fits the role of Star-Lord, or, or just, just he slides perfectly into there. It's like Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man. I, I can't even imagine the characters anyone else at this point. Now... I do have to mention uh, one of the other things that was going on historically at this point in time, and that is the Marvel Creative Community Committee. Excuse me. Some of you probably know who that is. In fact, if you're watching this and you've watched this far into this video, there's a pretty good chance you know who the Marvel Creative Community is. Committee. God, I keep stumbling over that word. And I hate them. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. That's probably overstating it, but... The Marvel Creative Committee is exactly what it sounds like. We are the heads who are oversight on all of Marvel products and blah, blah, blah. Now, there's that's a good idea in theory. It really is. Like, I, I legitimately am with that concept. But historically speaking, they're where ideas go to die. Now, this film was nearly torpedoed by the committee and had several key aspects of it which were changed or nearly changed as a consequence of the committee, which kind of makes my point for me. It wasn't until several years after this that Kevin Feige finally managed to rearrange the rules and basically successfully lobby for the fact that he, the mainliner of the MCU, no longer had to directly report to the committee on this sort of stuff. 
whether that's a good thing or not, we'll have to see over the coming years since we've got like three or four new films coming out and we'll see how those compare to previous ones, but I digress. Point being that they were like, oh, we're invincible, we can do anything. <laughs> now, there was a degree of truth to that. The MCU was basically gold at this point in time. And so they decided to try and mine lesser-known things. I already mentioned this with regards to Guardians. This is also where Ant-Man came from and Doctor Strange, actually. All of these were like, yeah, let's go and pull things that the common populace aren't going to know about all that much. Because, of course, a comic book geek is going to know about Hank Pym, right? But a, a person on the street is probably going to know about Spider-Man. So you can kind of see the gulf of difference between uh, public knowledge and geek knowledge, right? They were trying to mine geek characters for public presentation which led to Guardians, Ant-Man, Doctor Strange, and will lead to more stuff in the future as well. I think it was a good move, but I also think it was a good move specifically because of the, of the Marvel formula. Find the talent regardless of the resume, basically, as I, as I mentioned earlier. That being said, all of that being said, and, you know, they, they wanted to bring the Cosmic Marvel in, and they, they did the August release and all this stuff. All this stuff, this film, film, of course, knocked Winter Soldier out of the park as far as sales, which is hysterical, because that's an excellent film. But all of that being said, there's two more things I want to comment on before we actually dive into the film itself. First is Vin Diesel. Now, Vin Diesel is actually a pretty cool guy. You know, it's, it's funny given the roles he usually gets. But Vin Diesel is, is he, you know, he's, oh, hang on, let me just... Uh, Use my usual shorthand here. But Vin Diesel also really threw himself into this role because this was very shortly after the death of his friend, you know, as part of the, uh, the accident that happened and all that horrible stuff, which I'm not going to cover here. He was, he was not doing great. And having to do this role, he, he threw himself into it, and it helped him to recover. It helped him to uh, rebuild, basically, after all of that mess. And I feel like that adds a tremendous amount of not only wonderful joy to the film because of Groot, but I'm just glad that that was able to help a person. I know that sounds so stupid and cheesy, but I, I mean it. it. It's not a fun thing going through a loss like that, and I'm glad that this is, I was able to help him with that. Funny fact, though, really quick, while I'm, while I'm talking about factoids, did you know that all of Groot's lines of dialogue were actual lines of dialogue? You know, the, the, the script, act, the, the original script actually had it all written out. It's just those lines were taken away from the scripts that were given to other people. Only Rocket's voice actor and Vin Diesel were given the actual script. Now, you might be like, well, why does that matter? Well, it matters for two reasons. First of all, it makes the dialogue more coherent, so they know what he's actually supposed to be saying at a given point in time, or conversely, don't know what he's supposed to be saying at a given point in time. But more to the point, Vin Diesel recorded each I Am Groot individually with the tone and intonation of what it was he was actually saying, which, in my opinion, adds tremendously to the performance. Anyways, last thing I want to talk about. I walked into this film thinking... <laughs> whatever. Like, I even knew who the Guardians, well, several of the Guardians of the Galaxy were, and I'm just like, yeah, uh-huh. This is just gonna be stupid. But, whatever, I'm willing to take it on faith. You know, I'm willing to try it. It might actually be good. And I had enough friends who were interested in going and seeing it. Oh my god, this film is awesome! It was basically how my movie-going experience went for this one. I'm just curious how many of you guys had a similar experience. Funnily enough, I had almost the identical experience to Star Wars Rogue One. Sorry to segue, but it really was almost the same thing. Yeah, I'm mean, sure, whatever, I guess I'll go see it. I mean, it might be good. I'm not expecting anything. Oh my god, it's amazing. <clears throat> so the intro smashes you in the face. 
Wham! Hi, uh, these are the emotions, and they're beating the crap out of you. Your mother's dead! And then he gets kidnapped. And then, and the best part, the best part is the fact that he doesn't take her hand. Her dying wish was to hold her son's hand, and he didn't. And you know that stuck with him. There's also a couple lines of dialogue she says that I just have to mention in brief. You know, he's, he was like an angel, and he was so bright. And so when someday when your dad comes back for you, all of that was not hyperbole, as we discover thanks to Guardians of the Galaxy 2. I'm not going to spoil that film here. I just find it interesting that those seeds were already planted right at the beginning of this film. At six minutes and 19 seconds, the tone of the film is firmly established. And we now know exactly what we're in for as moviegoers. This is half parody, half serious, or what I like to call serious comedy. And pretty much a deconstruction throughout the majority of it. Because dark, horrible, grittiness. This is also why this will probably be a shorter video than most of my other MCU videos are. Because it's hard to discuss a comedy. There's only so much I can say about something that is deliberately intended to be funny. Quill is really good with his kit, his equipment. Um, it's funny because we actually see several heroes throughout the course of comic book, comic book history in general, but especially with the films that have come out, where their shtick is basically, I'm a normal guy, but I'm really good with all these tools. It's kind of understandable why, because that basically makes them a little bit more down-to-earth and relatable to, you know, you and me. The idea being that with enough training and experience, we could actually do the same things that Star-Lord does or Stark does or uh, you know, Batman, for example. The Batman's a little bit out there, but you get the general point. These are still people, and thus they are tool users. And there's also a degree of appeal from a writing perspective to write for a tool user superhero, because they're only limited by their tools, and tools can be a lot more utility than, for example, shooting lasers out your hands, right? You know, Havoc's great and all, but there's not so much he can do with regards to specific utility, whereas someone like Star-Lord can do a whole bunch of different gadgets and gizmos. Just thought I'd comment on that really quickly. I do wonder how much of his skill, because he is definitely good at what he does, came specifically from the Ravagers and more specifically from Yondu. I'm just, just curious about that, because Yondu is also pretty damn good, although he leans on that whistle a lot, but I digress. So, let's talk about politics, just real quick. I know you guys love it when I talk about politics. The Kree Empire and the Nova Empire recently just signed a treaty, relatively recently. And how did Nova Prime convince the Kree Emperor to sign that? Honest question. Now, funnily enough, I am recording this before Captain Marvel comes out. I know, I know. And I mention that because, you know, the Kree are probably going to be in that, and we're probably going to see some more history, backstory, politics, etc. from them. I suppose we'll see when we get there. But I mention this because the Kree Empire and the Nova Empire are both kind of background elements to the story, but both very crucial ones to the world building as well. They are two of the biggest sticks in the area. I wouldn't call them superpowers, but they're definitely two of the larger forces, nations, if you want to call it that, within this particular quadrant. And both of them have been at war for a really long time. And by all accounts, and this is of course just conjecture, but based on the way they talk about it, it sounds like the Novans were winning. What I want to know is how or why, because the Novans themselves are shown to be not super great in combat when going up against one battleship. So how are they winning on such a large-scale event? Now, we can, of course, infer things like their main battle fleet was not here because it simply couldn't get there in time, and Ronan was there first, and blah, blah, blah. We, we can infer stuff like that. 
It does make me wonder, though. And what role do the Ravagers play in that conflict? Because you can't tell me mercenaries like that would stay out of a conflict that large scale that has been going on for that long. But the other interesting thing about this whole thing, and I want to mention this because this is relevant to the tone of the film, this film is very small scale, which is funny when you think about it, since this was trying to open up the galaxy and add to the cosmic marvel. But it is very small scale. We are dealing with a terrorist. Fun fact, it's actually interesting if you sit back and think about it, how many of the villains of the MCU are terrorists? And I don't mean by the technically definition, because you can define a lot of villains as technically terrorists, but I mean like they're terrorists, you know, straight up. Like, say, Iron Man 1, Iron Man 3, um, this film, you know, there's the bit with, uh, oh god, it's something I can't think of his name. There are other examples, let's just move on before I stumble here too far. Because that is exactly what Ronan is. First time we see him, he is literally bathing in a bath thing. Nice bit of visual metaphor, because there's the bath, and then there's the Novan, and then he smashes the Novan's skull, and the Novan's blood drains out into the bath. Yeah! That's Ronan, the accuser. Not to be confused with Ronan, Hawkeye. Anyways. (laughs) Ronan the, ah! Now, I bring this up, though. You notice how idyllic uh, Nova Prime is? Based on uh, Spanish architecture, from what I understand. But still, you know, nice, peaceful, green, you know, blue skies. Lots of people acting and moving about. Now, granted, that's just one city we see, so who knows how the rest of the planet is. But generally, we're seeing people who are, let's call them upper middle classmen across the board. Now, that's interesting in its own right, because that kind of situation, that kind of society only exists if something is there to support it. Now, we get an impression of what that is, because within minutes of the altercation starting, the automated defense forces are there, and with the, you know, the tractor beams holding them in place. Now, that's actually kind of slow, if you think about it, but at the same time, that sort of automated process kind of gets you across the idea of how exactly they maintain this idyllic atmosphere. And also, it's interesting to note that for the crimes of fighting, fighting, discharging a gun, and... I'm not sure Groot did anything, really. Being sliced up? These people are sentenced to an unknown term in the in the high-security prison that they have out in an asteroid belt. Which means this these people probably are harsher on the justice side of things, or excuse me, I should say the uh, legal side of things, than otherwise, you know, otherwise could be considered. You know, you, you do an infraction, you do hard time, period. Maybe not for forever, but I bring that up as well. Again, this is still part of the world building, because if you notice, during our first couple of scenes in Hill or Hyle or whatever they call it, the prison, we notice several people there. Now, of course, there's the usual, ha, 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 I'm going to totally be horrible, and ha, 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 we're going to kill you. But we see a weird variety of people there. The one that will always stick with me is, as we're going through, there's a woman who is silently connected up to a little feed, which is showing a hologram of her family or whatever. That one just kind of stuck with me. And, of course, Drax is there, (laughs) but I'm getting ahead of myself. My point being, we see a variety of people there, which means there are probably some real criminals there, like Nathan Fillion, the blue guy, was probably a real criminal. And then we probably have people who jaywalked, or maybe they just said the wrong thing to the wrong press. Now, this is, of course, all conjecture, but I feel like this presentation gives us enough to to feed off of the design and the visual... uh, exposition enough that we can actually infer these kind of things. But this is all supposition, and as ever, I'm curious of your thoughts, too. 
Because it was, the, the, it was on the forefront of my mind through the whole section of Nova Prime. How do they maintain the society? Anywho, <clears throat> so uh, speaking of Ronan, I kind of skipped over him. Let's talk about Ronan. Ronan is a terrorist, <laughs> as I already mentioned. But he's also really boring. Now, I mean no insult to the character, excuse me, the actor, but ultimately Ronan is there to be the typical villain. That is his deliberate point. Now, it's hard to criticize or critique something that is deliberately trying to be something that would normally be considered bad, since he serves a significant point in the plot, and I'll talk about that later as well. But for the most part, he's just, I am here, and I bathe in the blood of my enemies quite literally. The end. The one and only thing I found interesting about him was that terrorism thing. What I want to know is how well he is supported by the Kree government. Because remember, when Nova Prime calls up the Kree, they basically said, oh, that's your problem, peace. Like, we stopped having military action against you. What do you want us to do about him? He's not part of us. Bye. Even if there's not literal support, I wonder if there is metaphorical, you know, moral, or, or like, I agree with what you're doing kind of support amongst the Kree Empire for Ronan. It's also worth noting that as we learn throughout the course of this film, Ronan has been off massacring and destroying a lot. Like, he has already killed a huge number of people. He is being referred to as a genocidal maniac. It's actually one of the reasons why Gamora has the reputation she does. Which is interesting, by the way, because by all accounts, all of her reputation as Gamora is for being Ronan's lackey. In other words, Thanos used her far more quietly and subtly. Interesting, isn't it? Because this film actually does a decent amount to establish Thanos, as it should, because they haven't really done that yet, and this is the first time we've gotten into the cosmic level where Thanos might actually, you know, you could see more than the, the lower parts of his boots, you know what I mean? So, there's a decent amount done. Like I said, Thanos is someone who even Ronan fears. Ronan, who is this big massacring person. And Thanos is also someone who has this reputation for being the Mad Titan. In fact, you'll notice the Novans actually specifically call out the Mad Titan when it comes to scanning her and her inf the information on Gamora when they, when they process her into the prison. And I mention that because that means Thanos is a known element, at the very least at the governmental level. But he is not known at the individual level like Ronan is, which again implies the idea that Thanos has been quiet in the background. Which makes sense. <laughs> As is eventually established in Infinity War, Thanos himself is quiet. He he actually only goes loud when he finally believes he has access to all of the souls. All, or all of the souls. All of the stones. Because he didn't want to get two or three and then have the others slip out of his grasp, right? So, Sense-making. Anyways, I'm getting off topic. So Ronan's generic. I, I am generic man. And um, then we have Nebula and Gamora, who both chomp at the bit to go and try to retrieve this stone. It's hard to really digest Nebula's personality and interactions just within this film because she's basically, the simplest way to explain her would be to say, it's complicated. You know, I will miss you. You are the sister I hated the least. Um, I, you are both crazy. I'm out of here. And she just kind of jets out. Okay. Obviously, that will be more fleshed out in the second film, so unfortunately, as much as Nebula's kind of cool in this film, there's not much to talk about with her similar to the situation with Ronan. Gamora, on the other hand, well, we know exactly why she wanted to get the hell out of Dodge. <laughs> she was desperate to get down there and go after the stone because in so doing, she would have the ability to buy her way out of Thanos' care. Although, as an aside, and this is just me speaking, I'm pretty sure that if Thanos wanted to get her back, 
he would have. After, you know, if she had succeeded, if she got the stone, she sold it to the collector, and she got out, no, Thanos would find her. <laughs> Assuming he wanted to, of course. So, looking at my notes here, there's the impound scene. Actually, really quick aside, we saw Christopher Fairbank as the broker. And I only bring that up because he's actually in a surprising number of scenes in this film. He's actually pretty good. I like his role. Uh, I also want to mention something about Zoe Zaldana, really quick, as Gamora. She, although she might have regretted this in the end, she insisted on doing a makeup job rather than a CGI job. Now, that basically means rather than having a bunch of dots on her face and some pseudo-visual effects to help the CGI effects later on, she wanted to actually spend, you know, two hours in makeup lying like this motionless, which... I gotta say, it sounds like a kind of hell to me, by the way. If I ever actually get into acting at this old age, that, that's gonna be the worst thing right there. But anyways, moving on. Point being, she wanted to do that because she wanted to be able to physically act. I personally think that does add to her performance. I think she does a good job with the fact that she is physically there and what we're seeing is actually her. I just wanted to comment on that really quick. So they go to the impound scene. Uh, first of all, it's nice for some freeze frame bonuses. We get a lot of little information on the side as it's being scanned in. That it's, That's there for people who have you know the pause button on the Blu-ray or the DVD. But we also get to learn a little bit about the nature of each character, except for, of course, the final one who we meet in the prison itself. I already mentioned uh, Gamora's reputation, so I'm going to skip over that part. Um, I also already mentioned Drax, although we want to talk about him for a second. But I also want to mention John C. Riley really quick, because he actually just nails ordinary guy in a good way. I, I don't mean that as an insult. I mean that as, as a compliment. He nails the kind of, hey, that's just what's going on. It's named Star-Lord, right? That's right, that's right. It's okay. It's normal. It's normal to have a code name. It's cool. It's cool. He's just kind of an everyday man, and I'm really sad about the fact that Thanos probably killed him in Infinity War. But anyways, moving on. <clears throat> so... <laughs> at 27 minutes and 40 seconds we meet our last guardian of the galaxy Drax who is just kind of there and what happens following is an interesting scene because we see that the prisoners have decided to break out and kill Gamora now what's most interesting is the way they're presented is initially and, I, and when I mean this I mean the way they are being visually presented the way they are being shot the way the camera angles are the way they are being acted and directed makes it sound like they're bloodthirsty criminals who are here to horribly kill you and yet if you pay attention to their dialogue it doesn't quite line up with that these are people who are pissed at Ronan and have lost families or friends or homes or whatever to Ronan and she is a known associate of Ronan so stabby stabby it is only until after the, the thread has basically been pulled down and they're all thing that they kind of drop the I'm going to stabby murder act and just kind of become there. I, f I mention that because, again, that ties into what I was talking about earlier about how many of these people are actually horrible people and horrible criminals and how many of them are just, you know, people who are thrown in here because, you know, Nova Prime, or not, not Nova Prime, sorry, that's the person, you know, the Nova justice system. We do see, of course, uh, Drax and his lack... So, Drax Drax is the perfect metaphor for the film as an entirety. And I mean that sincerely. He is dead serious and a, ter and a terrifying warrior. And one of the funniest parts of the film, in my opinion. They dial this up to 11 in the next film, where Drax is basically the comedy of the second film. But in, even in this film, Drax is still clearly the humor, right? He's still clearly the person... Why would I? Why would I put my finger a, across her neck? It's a very specific type of humor that most people actually can't do. And once again, I want to give praise to Mr. Batista for nailing it. Um, how many of you guys have seen? Oh no, I'm gonna have to look up his name. Hang on, hang on. Give me just one second. 
This is, this is important. <laughs> How many of you guys have seen Leslie Nielsen? Now, Leslie Nielsen is, an, is a long-standing comedic actor. Thing is, he doesn't think the stuff he's doing is funny for the most part. That's why he ended up becoming a comedic actor. Because he had the unique talent of not playing his lines as if they were jokes. Instead, he would play them completely sincerely with an almost straight, almost mundane quality that made them much, much funnier as a consequence. That's Drax right there. That's the tone they're going for with him. And they succeed brilliantly, in my opinion, of course, since comedy is extremely subjective. But more to the point, he is also very serious. This is a warrior born who has lost his family and is on a quest for vengeance. This is someone who messes up everything and arguably is the single biggest point of failure for the entire film. So, again, a nice metaphor for the film as a whole. Serious comedy. Now... <laughs> uh, th there's a scene with Thanos Ronan kills the other apparently the writer uh, worked very very hard on this specific scene because he wanted to establish Thanos but he also wanted to establish Ronan and that's actually more difficult to do than it sounds from a writing perspective there's only so many ways you can have two villains play off of each other without one of them seeming pathetic compared to the other so he decided to have Ronan kill the other the other, of course, was someone who could threaten Loki, thereby basically establishing the Ronin on the pecking order, so to speak. But in the process, of course, then Ronin is cowed by Thanos himself, who is utterly un unmoved by Ronin's, you know, oh, I've got the hammer of force push. He apparently he's a Jedi, I don't know. And Thanos is just like, yeah, listen, boy. <laughs> and I love the way he says that. Now, this is actually funny. I didn't actually know this was Josh Brolin. I actually was looking at it, I was like, oh wow, that actually is Josh Brolin. <laughs> he looks different, but he manages the voice quite well. And again, it helps to establish that Thanos is someone who is way above the pay grade of Ronan. Moving on. <clears throat> so then they have the prison break. This is a good scene to show two things. First of all, the different talents of the crews. Second of all, it shows how good they are when they actually work in a team. But what I like most of all is the scene where, you know, Quill's like, okay, I've, I've got to go back and I've got to get my tape player by. And so he rushes off, gets his tape player back, yards, and then they're like, oh, screw it, we're leaving without him. No, he's got the orb. <laughs> because he's not stupid. He is, in fact, very, very accustomed to working with other robbers and thieves. I mean, he's been with the Ravagers for how long? So, of course, he doesn't actually give them the orb. He keeps it with himself to ensure that they wait for him rather than trusting on their uh, altruism, shall we say. Which was a good move, since both Gamora and Rocket were totally cool with just leaving him. Now, what's funny is when he comes back on board, Drax is like, yeah, you're a true warrior and you're awesome. What, what, did you, what did you go to get? And he hands him the tape cassette, and he says, you were an imbecile. I find that to be a fascinating scene, because once again, it kind of showcases the point, because that is both a comedic and a serious scene. That's the tape player that has his tape that was given to him by his mother. I understand completely why he would refuse to leave without that thing. I, I really, really do. There are certain things in my life which are worthless things that I would risk neck and limb in order to procure because of how much significance and value they have to me personally on a sentimental level. I get that. The funny thing is, if he had bothered to explain in totality to Drax, I think Drax would have understood. 
This was one of the final gifts of my mother given to me before she died. I'm pretty sure Drax would understand the significance of that one. So then Ronan shows up. And you remember all those people I mentioned? The, the, the variety of prisoners that they showed up? Yeah, they're all dead. Ronan kills all of them. Remember, terrorist. And I keep using that word very specifically. I'm not trying to overuse it, misuse it. I'm trying to keep it in your mind because, in my opinion, when I realized this nature of his character, so much of him slotted into place so much better for me. Because, obviously, it's in space, and it's got the space opera thing going on. It's got the fantastical thing going on. But if you were to take the same events and put them into a more modern setting, say Ronan's just a guy, and Nebula's just a girl, and this is a prison he's broken into, and all of his men are in there with MP4s, right? And he says, cleanse the prison, and you hear, in the background. You can kind of see how that's chilling, right? You can kind of see how that gets across the nature of his character. Given that several people admitted that they were basically trying to redo the nature of Iron Man 1's storytelling in this film in a cosmic fashion, you can kind of see the direct parallels there as well. Anywho. So then they go to nowhere, haha, and then they go and meet the Collector. First thing about the Collector, why is he so rich? The world builder in me is desperate to know the answer to this question, because to my knowledge, the MCU has never answered this question. This is someone who can offer billions of units to establish his, cor his, his collection. Okay, I'm with the idea of, a, of an eccentric collector, but that money has to come from somewhere. Second point, you notice the Dark Elf? Actually, if you're paying attention, pretty much the entirety of the Collector's collection is just Easter egg after Easter egg. But it's also worth noting that the Collector is really, really horrible. The first time we see him here, of course, since obviously he had the cameo back in Thor 2. But the first time we see him here, he is threatening a woman for not working hard enough because she's his slave in order with, with tossing her into one of the cubes like he did with one of her fellows. And we see a shot of her looking terrified and in pain. Nice guy. I only point that out because several people were wondering how exactly, what flavor they were going to go with the collector when they, when they got to this film. Because, you know, we saw the, the tidbit in Thor 2. And I was just like, whoa! What is wrong with you? Jesus! Anyways. <clears throat> so, slight question. While we're talking about this really quick before we move on about the collector. Why did Quill never go back to Terra? Honest question. Uh, don't tell me he can't find it. If nothing else, they, it would be relatively easy to find within the, the confines of the galaxy. But more to the point, we know that they have the coordinates for it because the Ravagers have already been there. Yondu already went there to collect him. Why, do, in all of the years since, has he never had a desire to go back to Earth? It's just a weird thing. And I just wanted to comment on it briefly because I'm very curious where that's coming from. Anywho, <clears throat> back to the Collector. So then we have Karina. Now, Karina's interesting because she serves a very important plot point. She manages to give us across two pieces of information very, very quickly. First of all, well, I shouldn't say pieces of information. She serves two purposes in the plot. The first is to mess everything up because we need things to go badly to get to the bad part of the story, you know, when things go badly for everyone. Duh. Second part is she serves as exposition. Yes, the collector is like, oh, these are the Infinity Stones. And this is, if you're paying attention, obviously comic book fans and whatnot are like, oh my god. Because the first time we heard the words Infinity Stone, back in Thor 2, we were like, oh my gosh. And of course, we've been guessing that these were Infinity Stones pretty much ever since the Tesseract showed up. But remember, these films hit an audience that is greater than the comic book fandom. In other words, they hit people who don't know the comics. 
So this scene is actually, as much as it is pure, just dry exposition, it is a necessary scene for the component of the MCU as a whole. It is sitting down and saying, this is what the Infinity Stones are. When all of creation was made, the six aspects of it crystallized into these stones. That's what they are. And then he immediately, you notice he doesn't really talk about, uh, <laughs> he doesn't really talk about the nature of the stones as a whole, although he does reference each of them briefly. In fact, the one we see the most of is, of course, the Tesseract, since that was like all of Phase U was about the Tesseract. But instead, he focuses instead on the Power Stone, the one that's in this film, the purple one. Makes sense, since that is the focus of this film, and you don't want to dry too much exposition down people's throats. I mean, imagine putting sawdust on someone's throat. After a while, it's going to get to be a problem, right? So instead he then, you know, show, Karina then does perfect exposition by showing us exactly what happens when someone who can't control that stone uses it. It's bad. <laughs> and then everyone freaks out, and then Drax shows up. Now, or, sorry, Drax, no, Ronan shows up. Because he, what happened immediately prior to this is Drax and Rocket both got drunk. Now, we don't really see much of Drax drunk. What we do see is a lot of rocket drunk. It's the first bit of characterization we've had for him. We get to see that this is someone who has a huge chip on his shoulder. This is someone who is legitimately pissed at the galaxy and people who probably look down at, and, and look down upon and despise him. Keeping in mind that two people throughout this film have already, at this point in time, called him both vermin and rodent. I don't know about you guys, but that would wear the hell out of me after a while. And, uh, I'm, you know, human-sized. <laughs> I'm six foot, you know. I, that would bite, bug the crap out of me if I was a raccoon. Not that he knows what a raccoon is. Nice touch, by the way, in the prison. We actually see his cybernetics on his back. Just really minor touch, I wanted to point out there. So we see a little bit about where he's coming from. And I point that out because we actually get a lot of characterization for Rocket throughout the Nowhere sequence. Later on, he basically says, Peter, no, she's gone. We can't help her, dude. We gotta go back in. These things are not made for this. We gotta go back in or else we're gonna be screwed just like she is. Rocket is not evil. He's not even selfish, per se. He just is extremely realistic. He looks at the galaxy... Uh, realistic's probably the wrong word there. He is realism tinted with cynicism. He looks at things as they are and as they and he sees things as the worst as they can be. He looks at this and like, this is a mess and this is horrible and everything's horrible. Notice that his big plan for dealing with this Ronin situation is to go to the other side of the galaxy and hope that they can survive until the galaxy is destroyed. And he notes, even in his tone and his presentation, you get the idea, this is not something he wants. It's just, that's life. And life sucks. So what am I going to do about it? It is Groot and Drax who actually managed to talk him into the idea of, there's a great line Rocket has, yeah, so what, those are the only friends we've ever had, who cares? There's nothing we can do for them. It's just the two of us versus an army of them. And it is Drax who stands up and says, three. Keeping in mind that to this point, the biggest antagonizement has been between Drax and Gamora, for obvious reasons, and Drax and Rocket, for obvious reasons. Drax being willing to stand up for that one, that, that, that's significant. Especially someone for someone like Drax, who is really big on actions, not words. And of course, <sighs> he then d decides to basically go and be like, "All right, we're going to go take on this entire Ravager ship by ourselves." As a quick aside, some people have asked me to comment on this, so I'm going to talk about this since we're talking about Rocket right now. 
Some people have said, what's the difference between Rocket and Quill? Because they're both tool users. Well, no. See, uh, Quill, Peter Quill, is someone who is more like someone who is a very skilled, uh, I would call him an agent more than a specific fighter. He is someone who knows how to use his toolkit very, very well, you know, leaning towards the Batman side of the equation. Rocket is leaning more towards the Tony Stark side of the equation because, yeah, he can use tools, but that's not his big shtick. No, his big shtick is building and inventing. He is the one who is very, very smart and can figure things out like that. Remember, he's the one who put together the plan to get out of the uh, prison within minutes, remember. He's also someone who knows exactly what he needs from where he needs and how he needs it because he's just that good with tech. Again, very Starkish, like I said. So... That's the main difference between the two, and we see this because he goes out after the ship, the, the, the Ravager ship, with a gun, which doesn't do a lot of damage at first, but then, considering what we see that gun do later, I'm pretty sure that would have ripped the Ravager ship in half. <laughs> I mean, this is rocket we're talking about here. It might blow up a small moon, you know. By the way, quick aside. At first, I was going to write down every time this movie made me laugh. I quickly realized how much of an exercise in futility that would be. Plus, I'm not sure you don't, you don't want to hear any of that, right? <laughs> so <clears throat> they go to try to rescue them you know, and then there's this bit where you know Quill saves <laughs> Quill basically is like <sighs> and I like this because it's clear that he is not a bad person but he doesn't want to do this this is stupid and he's just going to get caught by Yondu and yeah, okay fine whatever whatever fine 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 fine, fine. I'm just, I'm just going to go rescue her fine whatever Notice he does call for Yondu first, though. It's not like he is sacrificing himself, per se. It's just he's sacrificing himself to Yondu to save her life. Why do you think he did it? I really would like to know your guys' thoughts, because you'll notice earlier in the film, he rescues her from Drax and from, you know, the thugs, and here he rescues her from you know, being spaced by Nebula. Why do you think he did both of these actions? Now, I could believe the earlier action was more because, ooh, she's pretty. But the second action, well... That's a little bit much for a pretty face. I'm not going to give my own answers here. I'm very curious of your guys's, so it'll be interesting to read in the comments section when we get to that. So, <clears throat> Yondu picks him up. He manages to talk his way through Yondu. It's another thing Quill's good at is talking. That's something that Rocket is incredibly inept at. What if I want something and he has it? Well, then that would be stealing. That would be illegal. But No, but I want it more than he does. Obviously, I should have it. I want it more. What's the problem here? Yeah. <clears throat> this leads to a scene where the Guardians are all standing around in a circle. And, well, basically, this scene is portrayed completely straight. And you know what? I like that. Call me a sentimental sap, but this scene is just completely serious and completely straight as all of them are like, all right, look, we've got to stop Ronan. He's going to go kill billions of people. He is a madman and a terrorist, and he needs to die. We have to go stop him. We need to get the stone away from him. And they're all like, okay, yeah, Peter, we can't stop Ronan. You're asking us to die. And what I love about it is, again, and this is played completely straight, Peter just realizes, yeah, I guess I am. And he, he has no answer to that. He has no solution to that. He has no, you know, of course, it's a worthy cause. He's not Captain America, in other words. He's got charisma, but he's not in the same bracket. He's not like, this is a cause worth fighting and dying for, like we saw in Winter Soldier, where Cap sent out that message to all of the S.H.I.E.L.D. headquarters, and people were just, like, lining up to follow him. It's not the same thing. 
Instead, there's a simple forthright honesty of, I don't know how to deal with this, and I can't ask you to do this, so whatever. Um, I don't, I, I don't. And it is Drax who stands up and says, yeah. Drax and Gamora both, you know, I, I have lived my whole life surrounded by enemies. I'm going to die by my friends. And Drax says, you know, yes, this will be a worthy cause, and you're an honorable warrior, and I will see my wife and, and daughter again. And Groot, of course, is Groot. I don't know if you're aware of that. And then Rocket's like, yeah, fine, we're all standing, fine, whatever. But this scene, I will admit, hits me in the sentimentals. Because it's all about the core theme of the film. At least what I presume is the core theme. And you know what that theme is? Why? Yeah, we could go and try to be selfish or get things or need money. Or maybe we want to go hide in some corner of the galaxy. And maybe survival is a good thing. But the question that is behind every action is the word, why? Why are you doing that? And what we see in this scene is each of them has discovered a why that they have not had before. To put it bluntly, it is the theme of family, which has been hammered into our heads in the second film, but it is still there. Why we do this is because of the fact that we're a unit. We're a team. And that's better than trying to go off and try to slink off or, or escape or just let hundreds of thousands of millions of billions of people die. Why is because it's worth trying, even knowing we're probably going to fail. Because it's not about, we will succeed. That's hope. No, this is defiance. We're going to go down swinging. And we're going to do it for the right reason. I love that. So, we get to the big action sequence. As usual, I don't have much to say about the big finale action sequence. I'm going to get a film. The ship field shows up. <laughs> it's, just, it's an interesting stratagem. I'm not sure what to make of it. Uh, you'd think they could have mustered something else, but whatever, whatever. Nova Empire, I don't know. Maybe they had a, maybe they were like Britain and they were like, you know what? Let's stop making ships and weapons. It'll be cool. Germany's cool. Yeah. Who's Hitler? Anyways, um, there's a great scene where Nebula, where, where Drax is basically being all sentimental and he's like, you are a good friend and you are a good friend and you, and Gamar's like, just stop. And then Nebula comes in. And just starts insulting and spitting at Nebula. And Drax just shoots her. Nobody talks to my friends like that. My audience cheered at that scene when we were in the theater. So we see the whistle arrow. Yondu has been kind of demonstrated to be a threatening presence. But anytime you have this kind of a threatening presence in a film, you usually need to follow through with why they're so threatening. So Yondu takes out an entire squadron of the Necrodudes by himself and a ship with the, with the whistle arrow. And that's a good scene, because not only is it cool, but it establishes why Yondu is so terrifying that he can do something like that. Uh, then there's a great scene where Groot kills like 30 guys. <laughs> Whoa. That's weird. <clears throat> Anyways. <laughs> uh, which is an awesome scene. And is a scene that I, I... The best part is he turns and he's like, Did I do good? I did well, right? And then, of course, you know, the ship is destroyed, and they're collapsing, and they all go falling down, and we are Groot. Need I say more? One of the things I like about this film is the fact that the stakes are small-scaled. I know I'm repeating myself, but I'm re-hammering this point, because this is one ship under one terrorist attacking one planet. This is still relatively small-scale. Yes, billions are in the stake, but imagine for a moment what the Kree Empire as an aggregate could do if they sent a fleet 
here. And keep in mind, Thanos himself doesn't really have a fleet in his own right. Well, he kind of does, but you know, not to this extent. So Ronan gets out on the planet. And this is the problem with Ronan. This is why... I mentioned earlier that Ronan's boring, but I still accept him because he still fits into the slot of the puzzle very perfectly. He is a typical villain. He cannot help but go down there and speechify and be like, Yes! Yes, I will kill you all because I am the evil guy. Know that your end... He starts monologuing. He straight up starts monologuing. And thus, of course, he gives them time to stop him. So... This, of course, then makes perfect sense because then Quill starts doing a dance-off with him and he just, credit to the actor who plays Ronan, this is the one scene where the actor really sells the role because he is just blue-screening over this. What are you... What are you doing? It's a dance-off, bro! Yeah! Shimone! Shimone! He just... Because, see, here's the thing. We look at that, and we can joke. You remember that some of you have probably seen the How It Should Have Ended for this, where he just like, okay, whatever, dance all you want, smash, and then it's, everyone's dead. But the problem is, that actually isn't how people work. Someone who is that into the role, someone who is this dark, horrible person who has killed you know millions of people and bathes in the blood of his enemies quite literally, is going to see someone dancing at him, and he's just going to shut down, like, wait, what? I mean, really, put yourself in him, in his shoes for just a second. He's about to kill a whole planet, and this guy's dancing. What? Like, the, and his brain, you can see, is just trying to comprehend what he's looking at until finally Rocket shoots the hammer, knocks the thing out, and they all grab it. I mentioned the ship earlier. The ships that were all forming the, 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 the web. <laughs> There's a lot I could say about that, but the thing I really want to say about that, aside from how bad of a tactic that is, is the fact that it showed the strength of numbers, which is actually a really big secondary theme to this film. Teamwork. What multiple can accomplish that alone can, cannot. And, well, we see this because, and I really like this scene because Peter literally cannot do this alone. None of them can do this alone. So they don't. And they each grab each other's hands and then share the power and essence of it and channel it through Ronan and disintegrate him. And then... The finale then concludes and we see basically the, the, the denouement, the, the epilogue starts playing. Some cool stuff there. We get to see Riley's character being with, you know, hey, here's his family. It was actually, we actually saw them earlier and they were saved by Rocket, go figure. And we get to see, you know... The awesome mix, volume two, which is awesome. We see Groot's son, which will be the Groot in the future films. But what I like most about the, the epilogue is the reason why he insisted on being called Star-Lord. Because if you think about it, on the surface of it, it just makes perfect sense, right? I mean, he's a kid from the 70s who was, was suddenly dragged. Or was it the 80s? Either way, he was suddenly dragged into... Uh, you know, into into space and completely detached from you know the cultural norms of society and humanity. So it's just kind of a, a cool sounding name that ultimately would really only sound cool to a kid, right? You know, that there's that specific thing that that is only cool if you're if you're younger. You know what I'm talking about? Star Lord, yeah. But we find out the real reason he goes by that and insists upon it, and is so happy when someone finally acknowledges that it is because that's what his mom called him. That was her little nickname for him back when he still had her. And that's kind of awesome. This is a surprisingly good film. 
this this film should not have been anywhere near as good as it was, and I'm very much glad that it was as good as it was, because I love the hell out of it. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts, brief though may be. I'll see you next time, guys.